You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. And even though this miracle of Jesus was too real for them, it was too magnificent, it was too wonderful, or even be dismissed, they were blinded. They were blinded in their hearts and they were blinded in their mind and they would not believe. But the problem, as the Pharisees saw it, was that there were too many people following Jesus. There were too many people following Jesus. This was the final straw for these men. The Pharisees did not like Jesus. Once Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they despised him even more because more people began following Jesus after witnessing this miracle. Today, Pastor Dave talks about the raising of Lazarus as the final straw in the Pharisees' blindness and hatred toward Jesus. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 11 as he continues his message, The Final Straw. Imagine somebody being raised from the dead and these people being completely untouched by it. One commentator said this, quote, If the heart will not yield to the truth, then the grace of God cannot bring salvation, unquote. Something has to happen in our heart. Something has to happen in our heart when we see these things. I told you, I don't remember when it was, but I, I told you that when Beatrice first got saved and came back from the Bible studies, it took me a long time before I came around and became saved. But something happened in my heart. Things were happening in my heart all along. This Jesus that I learned about growing up as a Lutheran became real in her. And I saw it, and something was happening in my heart. And it took a while before it finally regenerated. I went, oh my gosh, yes. These people didn't even give it a chance. So they couldn't wait to tell the religious leaders, little tattletales, little tattletales. Reminds me of the guys in Daniel. When the guys, when the guys in Daniel, when they wanted to rattle on Daniel, they go to Nebuchadnezzar and go, oh, Lord, live forever. You know, little tattletales. Calling Nebuchadnezzar Lord, not Lord, Lord. So they ran. Did you see what Jesus did? He raised that guy from the dead. Some of these individuals were at the tomb that day, ran and told the religious leaders, they saw the humanity of Jesus. They witnessed him consoling Mary. And they saw the power of God. They saw the power of God. When Jesus called Lazarus forth from that grave, they saw a man who they knew was dead come forth and walk out. I wonder if one of their friends believed, and the other one said, I don't believe, I'm going to go tell the Pharisees. Tattletale, go ahead. But neither of these things had a positive effect on them. Nothing had a positive effect on these people. In fact, it worked the opposite way because it held them come against them. It helped them to come against Jesus. This is what our unbelief does in our hearts and in our minds, folks. It blinds us from the truth. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians the second time, in chapter 4, he says this 
in verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age, the God of this age has blinded these people. The same thing happened to Adam and Eve, the God of the age, Satan, blinded them, blinded them to the truth, but it doesn't relieve their responsibility. However, Satan blinded them with questions like, has God really said you won't die? Questioning God's word. Has God really said that? And they end up believing the lie, and of course you know the rest of the story. They would rather believe a lie than be obedient to the Father. And even though this miracle of Jesus was too real for them, it was too magnificent, it was too wonderful, or even be dismissed, they were blinded. They were blinded in their hearts and they were blinded in their mind and they would not believe. But the problem, as the Pharisees saw it, was that there were too many people following Jesus. There were too many people following Jesus. This was the final straw for these men. Hence, the final straw. This was the final straw for these men. Now, everyone has heard the idiom, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Or, that's the final straw. That's the last straw. You've heard that. It usually means that there have been unacceptable occurrences that provoke this sudden and strong reaction. We've shortened it to say that's the last straw. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it had such an effect on the religious leaders that it was the last straw for them. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. The miracle became the final straw, and it compelled them now to commit murder. It compelled them to commit murder. They had worried about Jesus' popularity before. They had argued with them constantly about their religious traditions and about the commandments of God. They refused to believe that God had sent him. They refused to believe that he was the son of God. They refused to believe this all along. But now, with this miracle, they became even more worried. And so they had a meeting of the council. Let's read 47 and 48. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs, and if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. The council that they drew together would be the Sanhedrin, or Hedrin. Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, tomato, tomato. It's a council of the ruling parties. It consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what's really interesting that if you study this group of men, Sadducees and Pharisees, you come up with a political system which is much like ours. The Sadducees were the liberals. They, they were the liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Whereas the Pharisees, they were the conservatives. They did believe in the resurrection. They also believed in angels. Both these groups were in constant opposition with each other. Sound familiar? They were constantly in opposition with each other and couldn't get anything done, but they all joined forces for one thing, to come against Jesus. They couldn't agree on how to run Israel. They couldn't agree on how to keep the Jews in the religion. They couldn't agree on how to keep them moving forward towards God, but they could certainly agree about this man. 
They can certainly agree about what they wanted to do about this man. And why? It was necessary that the council meet because they didn't know what to do with this guy. He was stirring people up all over the place. Many were turning to him. Many were thinking he was Messiah. But these holy men were not seeking the truth. They were seeking to protect their own selfish interests. They wanted to keep the Romans away. Now, look at the words they use. The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What was their place? Well, they were the high mucky mucks. They were the ones with the big hats. They were the cool guys. You wanted something religious, you came to them. They were the ones that made all the money. They had all the power in Israel. So if the Romans come in, they're going to take away our place. They're going to remove us from the high point. The Apostle John gives us insight to why these religious men really wanted to kill Jesus. They became worried about losing their power over people. They, they became worried about that, that Rome would take over, but Rome was a, an offset. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Satan had blinded their eyes, had blinded their minds. He had blinded them to the things of the world. They wanted to keep their popularity. They wanted to keep their wealth and their riches and their fame. They wanted to keep their power, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. They wanted to keep all that. Why was Rome an afterthought? Rome had already ruled Judah for a long time. Rome had been in power now for quite some time. And this is partly true because in 68 and 70 AD, the Jews would revolt against Rome and be completely wiped out. The Jews would be completely wiped out. And the temple that Jesus predicted would fall, falls in 70 AD. And not one stone is left standing. But in these small, short verses, there's a persistent theme here which exists even today. The things Jesus did, the things Jesus said, divide humanity into two parts. Believers and non-believers. Believers and non-believers. Believers and non-believers. I didn't want to point to one and point to the other and think, well, he thinks we're all believers. It divides people. It divides people into two categories. You either are a believer or you are an unbeliever. Those who believe are free from bondage. They're free from guilt. They're free from sin. They have a liberty in Christ and the burden's been lifted. They're no longer captive by the world's lords. Lore. On the other side, those who choose not to believe are stuck in their sin. And Jesus already told them that if you continue in your sin, you're going to die in your sin. So they're stuck in their sin, those who don't believe. They're stuck in guilt. They're stuck in bondage. They have no liberty. They have no freedom. They remain captive to the world and the world's way. So the Sanhedrin, the governing council, the Jews were frustrated. What are we going to do with this guy? They become frustrated because Jesus was persuading more to follow them, Jesus, him, than they were getting followers. They were losing their people, and they were frustrated. They were trying to cling on to that which was not theirs. God had showed me clearly, you cannot hold on to that which is not yours. You cannot hold on to that. The fear they had was for themselves more than it was for the nation. They didn't want to lose their standing in the community. They didn't want to lose their place. So Caiaphas, who is the high priest, stands up and he speaks to them. Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, we're going to hear a lot about Caiaphas and his, I think it's his brother or father, Annas. 
We're going to hear a lot about them when we come to the uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But Caiaphas stands up in the middle of them, and let's look at 49 through 52. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So he has a solution. But first, he needs to scold the council. You don't know anything. You're not considering what's best for us. What's best for our benefit. Notice he says, what's good for our benefit. Selfish reasons. It's all about them. It's all about selfish statement. He's saying we need to act to protect ourselves. We're losing people, which means we're losing money. We're losing our, our standing in the community and our status. What was his proposal? Kill him. That was his proposal. Let one man die instead of the whole nation. So he proposed that, that Jesus would die for the good of the people. What was interesting about this, here you have a holy man presenting logic that's sinful. <laughs> this holy guy is standing before the council and he's presenting a logic that is completely sinful. Let's kill him. That's good for us. What? Have you not heard of thou shalt not murder? Thou shalt not get what? Have you ever heard of that? It's, it's the same thing that Paul writes against in Romans 3 in verse 8 when Paul says, Let's look at five. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? That's what Paul's coming against. And they're saying, let's kill him for the good of men. For the good of men. But it's a good proposal because he didn't say it on his own. He was high priest. He's prophesying here of what really is going to happen. Even though they're trying to rationalize their wickedness. I don't know about you. I told you, you guys are much more spiritual than I am. I don't know about you, but I always use, you try to rationalize when I do wrong. Well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> I always try to rationalize when I do wrong. A host of reasons as to why I acted the way I acted. Caiaphas rebuked the council and said, I got an idea. Let's kill him. But he was being used by God. This was God's plan. I told you a million times that Jesus on the cross was not plan B. It was plan A before the foundations of the world. It was the plan that was going to come effect. God was working it together for our good. God was working it for our good. We know that Jesus had to die for the people, not just the Jewish people. He had to die for all the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In 1 John 2, 2, it says this, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation is a big word that means atonement. It's an act of appeasing. Jesus' death on the cross appeased God's law. It fulfilled 
God's law. He appeased the requirements. So without a trial, without any evidence other than the fact that he raised someone from the dead, the council decides we're going to kill him. We're going to get him. Psalm 109, 4 and 5 says, they rewarded me evil for good. And this is what's happening to our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 53 in John 11. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now we've read time and time again how they wanted to kill him, how they wanted to get rid of him. But now the last straw has happened. Straw that broke the camel's back. We're going to lose our positions. We're going to lose our standing in the community. We're going to lose our paycheck. We're going to lose all these things because of this Jesus character. What are we going to do? Kill him. Logical. So the, this group that could never agree on anything finally agrees that they're going to put Jesus to death. Jesus must die. It's interesting to me that these religious leaders actually thought they were in charge. That's how blinded they were by the world. They actually thought that they were going to do something. Not thinking about the foreknowledge of God, the providential hand of God, who has already had this plan in motion. They soothed their conscience. I love that. They soothed their conscience by telling themselves, it's for the good of the nation. It's for the good of the nation. Again, how we justify our actions. We justify our sins to get what we want. We justify our sins to keep the status quo and to make us feel important. How we love to love to do that. But Jesus knew what was in our hearts. He knew what was in our hearts, and once again, it wasn't his time. Again, we're only days away. We're only days away from the crucifixion, but it wasn't his time. Read verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Jesus basically ends his public ministry. The next time he appears in public, we'll be riding on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem. The next time he appears in public is when they're all screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. But he continues to teach and you're going to find out that even in the Gospel of John, through all the other Gospels, from the time that Jesus stops his public ministry to the time he goes in Jerusalem, there's a lot of teaching that goes on. A lot of heady material stuff. And even that last week of Jesus' life, many teachings are going on and many things are happening. Jesus wants now to fill the disciples with all the information because he knows his time has come and it's time for him to be arrested. He didn't withdraw out of fear. He didn't withdraw out of fear. He withdrew so that the Jews couldn't act hastily and spoil the plan. What was the plan? When was he supposed to die? Passover. He was supposed to die Passover. He was supposed to die Passover. So he goes away to a small town called Ephraim. But look at 55. Hmm. What's it say? And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, i got to say one thing about going up to Jerusalem. When you come out of the wilderness, in every direction, the ride up to Jerusalem is long. When we were on this bus coming from Jericho, coming from the Dead Sea, which, by the way, is the lowest point in the entire earth, and Jericho is the lowest city in the entire earth, 
We did nothing but climb the entire time going up to Jerusalem. Passover, when he said to go up to Jerusalem, it's pretty cool because we went up and up. Jerusalem was one of three feasts that required all male Jews to be in Jerusalem. The Passover, excuse me. The Passover was one of three feasts that required all male Jews to be in Jerusalem. So they were going up to Jerusalem. They all were going there. And they wanted to purify themselves. They wanted to cleanse themselves to make sure that they were ready for the feast. And the crowd began to gather in Jerusalem for the feast. And while they're there, they're looking for him. Where is he? Is he coming? Where is he? Did they put a picture of him in the post office? Did they run around passing out pamphlets? Have you seen this guy? Give us a call. I mean, they look for him. Let's finish out. They sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given the command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. They wanted to get him. They had wanted to wait until Passover was over, but that was not the plan of God. Remember way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John? Way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist is out there, and this man comes walking towards them, and he sits and he points and goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's proclamation. On the week that we're coming into, no less than 250,000 lambs were slaughtered. No less than 250,000 animals were killed. But I'm going to tell you something. Number 250,001, that one was more perfect than all the other 250,000, all the other thousands and millions that had gone on before, that one lamb. The lamb who was slain, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb of God, he is the one would come in there, and he is the one that would die on Passover. He would be and is our Passover lamb. He is the one who did it. He is the perfect sacrifice, and it is only by his blood, only and solely by his blood, that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. The stage was set. The final straw had been broken. The council said Jesus must die. But God's plan... God's plan was now moving forward, and it was moving at great speed. Remember when we talked about the book of Revelation? Remember how we said that as we look at the book of Revelation, as you act get to end times, how it seems to be like a snowball on a hill? You set it down there, and it starts to roll, and it picks up speed and gets bigger. Well, God's plan here is now starting to pick up speed. The time has now come. The time is there. The cross is no longer, no longer weeks, months away. It's only about a week away. We're coming to that last week of Jesus' life, that most important week. We've called it Holy Week. And there's a lot to be learned in that, and a lot happens. You are a sure.
The Gospel of John was written from a perspective that provides an eyewitness account of what happened during the life of Jesus here on earth. Different than the other three Gospels, John's book describes Jesus in ways that confirm him as the Son of God. There are things done and said that can only point to Jesus being far more powerful than what a human could do. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as I Am. In this book, John recounts how Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the resurrection and the life. These were bold statements, but Jesus proved throughout his ministry that they were indeed true. He lived a life that compelled people to follow at that time, to seek him out, and to commit their lives. And we can also follow him today. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit assurehoperadio.com. Perhaps you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about faith, and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at assurehoperadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on A Sure Hope.